Well, it's good to be in church tonight, isn't it? Appreciate the goodness of the Lord. If you don't have anything else to be thankful for tonight, you can be thankful that we have a warm sanctuary to be able to meet in. And uh, it has gotten cold on us, but I appreciate the comforts that the Lord has given us. I, uh, I preach, or teach at least, through Baptist history in my Sunday school class at the church. And in the last few weeks, we've been talking about quite a few of the Baptists that were in Kentucky. And to read the stories of some of the things those people went through, and uh, it makes me really thankful for just the simple uh, comfort of a, of a building and, and the AC and heat, and I appreciate the goodness of God. Amen. It's good to be here. Always such an honor to get to be at Progress Baptist Church, and I sure do appreciate the opportunity. The only problem that I have with Pastor Rains asking me to come preach is I don't understand why he has to ask me to preach when Dr. Rains is here. <laughs> And uh, I have to preach in front of him. It may be because he doesn't trust me, and he wants to make sure somebody's here to keep an eye on me while I'm preaching. But uh, but it's an honor. He's uh, Dr. Rain's become a hero of mine. And I, you know, I grew up in the church just not far from where we're at now, and it was a great church. But Dad wasn't a pastor. He didn't start pastoring till I was about 13 years old. So uh, I didn't know a lot of preachers outside of this area. Really, Brother Lee Davis that was out there at Georgetown, uh, he was good friends with Dad, and most of the preachers that we heard were preachers that preached in his church, and outside of that, I didn't know many. In fact, I may have said this before, but I remember the first choir that I ever heard, and I just thought, wow, that's amazing, was uh, was a Pleasant View's choir singing up at Pastor Davis's. So, uh, so I haven't, uh, I, I get to talk to a lot of people, I'm jealous of them getting to be under the ministry of Brother Rains for years and years. But I do appreciate the years that the Lord's allowed him to impact my life. And it's an honor to get to preach in front of a hero of mine. And, you know, uh, Christianity, that's the only thing that I know where you'll have the opportunity to do that. You know, there's, there's people that aspire to be great basketball players. And they'll never get to play in front of their heroes. Uh, they, they aspire to be great musicians. And most of them will never get to, to perform in front of their heroes. But uh, one thing about being a Christian is you get to have a close relationship with your heroes, amen? And I sure am thankful for that, but good to be in the Lord's house. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Thank you for the, the singing tonight and the testimonies. Those testimonies blessed my heart. I always appreciate the uh, welcoming spirit of this church. I'll pick on Brother Gassaway for just a minute since he's not here, or at least I don't see him. He may be listening somewhere. But uh, we pulled into the service tonight, and our oldest boy, Joseph, he's four, he said, he said, Mom, I remember this church. I said, yeah, you do? He said, yeah, this is the church where the funny guy goes to church. So uh, I guess Brother Gassaway is known as the funny guy in our family. But uh, that's, I guess uh, you could be long, known as a lot worse than, than, uh, than just having some uh, joy. So I appreciate that. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter number five. I want to preach to you a thought that uh, is really, um, really anywhere I preach in the Bible is way bigger than me. But this thought in particular, this is a, a way deeper subject than I'm able to deal with. So I want to just try to scratch the surface of it just a little bit tonight. In fact, the Lord put this verse in my heart. I'd say about a month ago, I was filling in for Dad at our church, and to be honest, it was one of those weeks where I had really struggled on getting settled where the Lord wanted me to preach, and I just felt like I didn't have anything. And just in Tuesday evening and a little bit on Wednesday that I got to study, uh, really last minute, 
when you're thinking about having to preach on Wednesday night. Uh, but the Lord began to put this in my heart, and, and it, it's, it's, it's amazing. I think if you teach or preach, you, you understand this. But it's amazing how, how, how it, you can feel like you have nothing, and then it's like the Lord just turns the spigot on a verse or a passage of Scripture, and I feel like that's what he did in my heart. I don't generally preach this way, but what I want to do tonight, I want to read just one verse from this chapter, and uh, I'll say just a few things about it, and then we'll also go back to the book of Genesis and I have several places in the Word of God I'd like to take you, and hopefully the Lord will help me to deliver this to you the way He's put it in my heart. But let's just read this one verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse number 17. Paul said this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Really, when you look through this chapter, there are several verses that are pretty familiar that we'll quote quite often. But I would say verse number 17 is probably the most familiar verse in this chapter. And it's incredible the perspective that Paul gives us on our salvation. Uh, but really when I'm interested tonight, and I'll give you the title of my message, I want to preach on the character of God in creation. The character of God in creation. And I'm interested in what Paul said when he said that we are a new creature. Now, I know that there are several modern uh, versions that will change this word creature to the word creation. And I want to be very, very clear, that's not what I'm trying to do tonight. I think there's a very big difference between the word creature and the word creation. The word creature means it's a living creation. You can be a creation and still not be alive. But a creature holds a different meaning than creation. So I don't want you to think at all that I'm trying to twist the scripture. I believe God perfectly put that word there. But to be a creature means to be created. Uh, to being a creature of God means that God has created us. Uh, so if, if, if you will, just kind of keep that thought in your mind. As I said, we'll say a few things about this chapter and then look at several other passages. But I want to look at God's character in creating us through salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. Lord, I thank you for your people. No doubt had busy days and uh, tough days, and, but Lord, I'm thankful for their effort to be here in their place and to be assembled with your people. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would touch us tonight. I pray that you'd help me to say exactly what you'd have said to our hearts. And uh, Lord, even though I, I feel like this may be more of a Sunday school lesson than an actual uh, message, but Lord, I pray that you would use it to challenge us and Lord, to remind us of what you've done. Lord, every time I think about this, I think about how amazing it is that you could take me as a nothing and a nobody and put me in the family of God. And Lord, the fact that you care about me and the fact that you're working on me, and, and Lord, that's just amazing to me and I'm thankful for it. And I pray that you'd remind us of that tonight. I pray for Pastor Reigns as he preaches in his place tonight that uh, you, would, you would touch him and, and bless their service in Georgia. And we'll thank you for all that you do. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I won't say much about this chapter, even though, as I mentioned just a minute ago, there are a lot of great truths and a lot of great verses that are found in this chapter. But really, I want to focus just on verse number 17, and I want to give you four points of introduction about what Paul is describing here in this verse. The first thing that I would, I would have you notice about this verse is that Paul mentions a paradox uh, you're probably familiar with what a paradox is. A paradox is really a statement or two things that don't make sense together, uh, but yet they represent a great truth. And that's what 
uh, happens here, you'll find there are several great paradoxes concerning our salvation that are mentioned throughout the Scripture. But one of them is found in this text. You'll notice the first word of verse number 17 is the word, therefore. And, of course, that connects it to the previous verse, number 16. And when you look at verse number 16, you'll see the first word is the word wherefore, which connects it to verse number 15. And when you get back to verse number 15, here's what Paul said. It said that he, talking about Christ, died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So the paradox is, is that Jesus, who had always been alive, was willing to come to this earth, and he was willing to die so that us, who had always been dead in our trespasses of sin, could be alive spiritually to him. It's amazing. Jesus is the only one that could take death and bring forth life. But it's a great paradox that's found concerning our salvation. And I'm thankful for that opportunity. If it had not been, I know this is elementary, but if it had not been for the willingness of our Savior to go to the cross and to give his life for us, then we would have absolutely no hope of life beyond the life that we live in. Not only do you see a paradox in this text, but also you'll notice that Paul mentions a position. Now, one thing I love about this verse is that Paul does not describe our salvation as just being an experience. Even though the, I believe that salvation is an experience. If I didn't have a moment that I could go back to that I remember the Lord dealt with my heart and I trusted him, submitted to his will and salvation for my life, uh, then I would be concerned about that. And you know, it's really concerning how many people are trusting in, in some sort of baptism or some sort of certificate or, or something in their life, but they really have no experience of knowing Jesus. So I'm thankful for the experience of salvation, but we also understand that salvation is much more than just an experience. In fact, when Paul describes our salvation, he said, I'm not describing the experience that you had, but I'm describing to you the position that you're in. And I'm thankful that in salvation, it's not just a place that I go back to on June 25th of 2000 when as an eight-year-old boy I got saved, but it's a, it's a present-day position that I am in to be in Christ. You'll notice the phrase that he uses. He said, if any man be in Christ. Uh, Paul talks in the book of Romans about Christ in you, and then in the book of Ephesians as well, he uses this phrase over and over again, to be in Christ. And I'm thankful tonight that when we get saved, that is the position that we have. We are in Christ Jesus. I was reading recently about uh, some things that Spurgeon said about this verse and I thought he put it very well. He said there are three positions that man are in regarding their relationship with Christ. The first position is to be without Christ. That's where we were before we were saved. That's where the majority of humanity is without God. They're without Christ. The second position is described here. When we get saved, we are put in, in Christ. And then the third position is a future position is to be with Christ. Paul even talks about that earlier in this text, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And I'm thankful that is the position that we will someday have, not just spiritually. Someday the position we have spiritually will become our physical position and we will be with Christ for eternity and I'm looking forward to that day. So there's a paradox that he mentions, there's a position that he mentions, but also another thing I think is interesting in this verse is that Paul gives us the proof that we are in Christ. This is something that can be evidenced in our life as a Christian. He said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And here's the litmus test. He says, 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Aren't you glad that our position spiritually makes a difference in our life? It really concerns me how many people in this world that want to say they're saved and yet they're still involved in all the old things that they used to be involved in. Listen, I understand that none of us are perfect. We'll talk about that in a moment. God is still working in our life. But I'm thankful there is a distinct difference when someone is put into the position of being in Christ. All of those old things and that old nature has passed away. Here's one thing I'll say. God is not just remodeling us. We are not just a rehab project for God, but we are a recreation. He has completely took away the old, and he's bringing in the new into our life, and I'm thankful for that. Not only that, I want you to see this, and this is really where I want to get to in this verse. He talks about the process. Now again, as I mentioned in our opening, in verse number 17, he describes us as being a new creature. That God is working in our life. Now, one thing we understand, first of all, is that this is not a physical recreation in our life. What Paul is describing, what has happened to us in salvation is not physical, but it's spiritual. Now, someday, as I mentioned a moment ago, we will be with Christ and that physical recreation will take place. In fact, Paul talks about that as well just a little bit in the first part of this chapter. He said, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. That's the physical recreation that will happen in our life someday. So one thing I can understand as far as the application to where I'm at tonight as a Christian in 2023 sitting on a church pew, that God hasn't physically recreated me. When you got saved, the night you got saved, you may have had a different, uh, you may have had a different glow or a different attitude. I'm sure you did if you got saved. But, but nothing changed about your physical appearance. You, you still looked the same. You still, there, was nothing, there was nothing noticeable difference other than what God had spiritually done in your life. God didn't do anything to us physically. So we understand that it's a spiritual creation that the Lord is working in our life. Just like the physical, in fact, it's, it's interesting to me when you think about that God could have saved us, and in the moment that he saved us, he could have glorified us, he could have took us to heaven, and we could have instantly been in the presence of God. I believe with all my heart, God could have done that if he had chosen to do that. But what Paul's explaining to us is that not only, not, and I want you to understand what I'm saying, I, I, I feel like this is a subject that can be so easily misunderstood, but it's not just that God saved me and my position has changed, but after my salvation, now he begins the process of creating me and working in my life for me to become the image of Christ. It's you know a great application. Paul used it when he was talking to the church at Corinth. He talked about them being babes in Christ. And we understand this, that in our growth in the Lord, there are different levels. There are some that are newborn, and there are some that are babes in Christ, and uh, there are some who go further. They grow in the things of God, and, and they become mature in their spirituality. So we understand this, that even though I, don't, even though I, have, mu I have as much of God as I ever will, I'm positionally just, I mean, just as much as if I'm in heaven, positionally my spiritual position is seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places, but it's a process of God working in my life to get me to that point. Now, I'm interested in this word creature. Again, I'm not trying to do any damage to the scripture, but uh, it's this, a creature is a creation. It's a creation of God. 
And I want you to go with me back to the book of Genesis. And I want us to look in Genesis at God's attributes as he began to create the world. Now, you can do a little interesting study. I'm not... I'm not too crazy about getting into studying the Greek and things like that. I know everybody kind of has their own opinion on that. If you look up the word creature that we use there in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 17, you'll find the first mention of that word. I don't even remember the name of the Greek words that's used, but the first mention is in the book of Matthew. And it's actually when Jesus himself was talking about the creation of the world. So I love to go back to the book of Genesis because when you get to the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, you see see everything as God had intended it to be. Before man got in the middle of it and messed everything up, you see uh, kind of the purity of God's creation in the first three chapters. So my question is tonight, in thinking about God creating us, not physically but spiritually, can we notice some attributes of God in creation working in our life? And I think the answer very clearly is yes. There's two that I'll just mention. I don't even have time to say really anything about them. You can study this for yourself. They really could be messages on their own. One of the attributes you'll find as you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is you'll find that God has an attribute of delegation when he creates. Meaning this, that the nature of God is not to create anything without purpose. Everything God creates is for a reason, and He has a plan and design for it. I have no idea where everybody here stands on the gap theory. Uh, Dr. Raines, wherever he says, is is good on that. I'll just take his word for it. I personally, I'm not... I don't really follow that train of thought. One of my biggest is, or I guess one of my biggest hindrances is that I don't understand. There's a lot of different opinions on that, but I don't understand why God would create something without a purpose because it seems to be against God's nature. Everything that he created, and you can look, I won't even point it out, but everything he created, when he created the stars, he put them in their place, the sun, the moon, when he created the uh, trees, when he created the animals, we created man, he began to delegate positions to everything. What he was saying is he's saying, I have a purpose for my creation. Now, you could go and you could look at all the application of that to our lives as a Christian. Isn't it true that God has a purpose for recreating us? When he saved us, he didn't just save you to sit on a church pew and to fill up space. He saved you for a purpose. And what happens in your life when you get saved, all of a sudden, God begins to create in your life what he wants you to be. And he'll start to delegate to you what your purpose is in the body of Christ. Not only do you see delegation, but you'll also see God's attribute of division. To me, this may be one of the interesting aspects of God as he creates things, is that in creation he'll divide. Now on the surface, that doesn't really make sense to me, Lord. Why would you divide things that you're creating? But I think all of us understand the process of dividing to create. In fact, if you want a very simple explanation, just try to build something without a saw. It's virtually impossible. To to be able to create something, you have to be able to divide so that you can distinguish and you can put things together. And you'll find that through creation. God divided the firmaments from, from, uh, from each other. Uh, he, he divided the land. He divided... One, one of the really interesting things is you'll find before Adam was even complete with his spouse Eve, God divided him. He, he, he opened up his flesh and took out a rib, closed the flesh back, and he brought Eve to Adam and brought them together to be complete. 
So one thing I understand is that God has an amazing attribute when he's creating of using division in that process. And can't we all agree that's how God works in our life through salvation? You get saved and all of a sudden, that's why Paul said in the book of Galatians, he refers to it as our spiritual circumcision. All of a sudden, God begins to cut away things in our life that are not supposed to be there. You didn't get up from the place that you got saved and all of a sudden cleaned up and everything was gone. No, it's a process of God. There are some obvious things that seem to, to come out quicker than others at the beginning. And then God just keeps dividing to create us into what he wants us to be. So that's interesting to me. He delegates and he divides. But here's the one I want to look at tonight. And I want to take you to a few places that, that I hope will shed some light on this attribute. But I want you to look at the process of development that God has in creation. One of the most interesting things to me when I consider the natural creation of this world is that God didn't do it instantly. He decided, now he could have, I think all of us would agree on that, that God could have spoke the word. All he had had to say was one word and the world would have been in its place exactly the way that it was supposed to be. But he didn't do it that way. God decided when he was going to create the world that he was going to do it a little bit at a time. He decided even though we know it all happened in six, I believe, literal days, and then on the seventh day he rested, but he didn't just say, let there be earth, and all of a sudden earth was there with water and land and, and trees and animals. He could have, but that's not how he chose to do it. In fact, let me, if you will, go with me to Genesis chapter number one. Let me just point out to you some of these uh, some of these areas of development that God used when he was creating the world. You'll see, first of all, that he developed the earth itself. In verse number 1 and verse number 2, the Bible says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Again, wherever you fall on the gap theory and all the opinions that go on in these two verses, one thing we understand is that God began, first of all, with nothing, and then the Bible describes it as being the face of the waters. So that's where he chose to start. And then from there, in verse number 6, the Bible says that God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. So God goes from there being waters and void and nothingness to placing a firmament, an atmosphere in between those waters. And we know that from all we can tell in Scripture that before the flood there was the waters on the land and the waters in the heaven and the atmosphere divided those waters. And God's process was to go from, from water to atmosphere. And then you'll notice again in verse number 9, he said, and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. So this is just interesting to me how God didn't just speak the word and it was all there, but he started with waters and he put in a firmament and then he caused the dry land to appear out of the waters. Uh, you'll even see this when he developed the herbs. I was trying, I don't know that I actually marked the verse, but it's interesting to me that, that when God, when, when God, uh, when, when he when he created the trees and all of the herbs of the land, that he said, let the, I can't even find the verse, you're probably looking at it, but he said to let it, look, verse number, verse number 11, that's the verse. He said, let the earth bring forth grass. Now, we know it wasn't a long process because it all happened in a day, but he said, let the earth bring forth grass and the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed in itself upon the earth. And it was so. So, so even when he, when he decided to, 
to create the plant kingdom, he allowed the earth to actually, as far as I can tell, to bring forth. He didn't just speak it into existence, but everything began to sprout from the dry land that he had created. You'll not only see this development in, in the creation of land, but you'll also see this in the creation of light. This is an interesting aspect of creation in chapter number 1. First of all, in verse number 3, I don't understand this verse. You, you're, you can explain it to me, I'm sure there's... But here's what he said in verse number 3. Uh, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Before the sun, before the moon, before the stars, here's where the Lord starts. Somewhere out here in eternity, before time has ever begun, he says, let there be light, and there was light. And then he goes from there. You'll see it in verse number 14. He develops different lights. He said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. He said, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights. Verse 16, the greater light we know is the sun to rule the day. The lesser light, the moon to rule the night. He made the stars also. So God didn't just say the word and all of a sudden the stars and the sun and light existed but he began with light and then he created the sun and then he created the moon and then he created the stars and he developed his creation. Uh, let, me let me show you just real quick and there's so much you could say about this but also you'll see this in the development of man. God didn't just speak the word and all of a sudden man was standing there as a living, breathing creature. But here's what the Bible says. This is in chapter number 2. We know this isn't a different day. This is still on day 6. But the Bible gives us more detail in chapter number 2 of everything that happened on this day. And he begins in verse number 7 by forming man. It says that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Instead of just speaking the word, here's what God said. He says, I want to take with my own hand. I can't even imagine one of the most amazing things to try to picture is the God of heaven reaching down into a pile of dust. And he just, he, he starts to work and he starts to form. And all of, through that process, you, you see that dust becomes the shape and the image of a man. And then he goes from forming man to verse number seven, when he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And in fact, he goes further in Adam's life. Now, I don't understand why he did this, but he caused Adam to be single for a certain period of time, at least enough time uh, during that day for him to name the animals and him to see that all the animals had a companion and yet he was, he was left. I don't understand all of that, but I think God had a purpose in Adam's singleness. And eventually, by the end of that day, God said, Adam, I'm going to put you to sleep. And he put him to sleep and he took out a rib and he made a woman and he brought that woman to Adam and he called him Eve. And Adam was finally complete, but it was through a process. God didn't instantly do it. And what you understand is that God, it just seems like when he creates, he has a process of doing it. Now, to me, in, in my humanity, I think, Lord, I would avoid all of that work. If I had the supernatural power to just speak it into existence, I wouldn't form man. I wouldn't take the time to breathe into his nostrils. I wouldn't take the time to take a rib out and create a woman. I would just speak it all into existence. That's, that's not God, how God works. I want you to notice this about his development. There's a couple of things. It's interesting to me how God developed. One of the things you'll notice in verse number 2 is that it was the Spirit of God that moved upon the face of the waters. There's a great application in the fact that, you, you know, the whole the same Spirit that moved upon the face of those waters that were nothing in the beginning 
is the same Holy Spirit that God has placed inside of us. And it's the same Holy Spirit that is involved in the process of God developing me into the person that he wants me to be. He's developed by the Spirit, but he also developed by the Word. You look through these pages, I won't, note, I won't note every one of them, but you see the Bible says, and God said, and God said, and God said over and over again. It was the Word of God that was developing creation into what he had in mind for it. If I can put it this way, and I'm not trying to humanize God in any, any stretch, but if I could put it this way, it's as if when God began to create, he had the final picture in mind. He knew what he wanted to be, but he had a process of how to get there. And would you believe it if I tell you this? I think this is true, that when God saved you, he has the final picture in mind of what he wants you to be. But you didn't instantly become that picture. He began at salvation the process of developing you into his creation. Now here's the question that, that baffles me when you look at this text. Why does God develop things? If he does have the ability to say the word and it be done, if it would be the shorter route, that's how most of us would do it, then why does he do it like that? Why does, he, why does he not just speak it into existence? Why does he take the time? Why in salvation? Let me ask you this question. Why in salvation did God choose to develop us? Why when he saved us did he not just instantly glorify us and take us to heaven to be with him? And I believe this is the answer to it. Is that the reason God develops things is because he enjoys the process. I remember hearing a preacher say this, and it really changed my perspective on, on God and the way that, that he operates. He said this. He said, God knows everything. We agree with that, that God's omniscient. He knows everything that's going to be. He knows everything that's happened. And, and this is hard for me to process, but the statement was is that God knows everything, but God hasn't experienced everything. And there are some things that God wants to experience. The text that preacher used was Genesis 22 when God told Abraham to take Isaac. God knew Abraham's faith. And he knew that Abraham's faith was real. But the reason he asked Abraham to take Isaac on the mountain is he wanted to experience Abraham's faith. And that's why Abraham so perfectly said, I am the latter going to go worship. Because that's exactly what Abraham did. He was worshiping God by being willing to give his son. And God was experiencing Abraham's worship in that process. So, so I believe this. I believe that God enjoys. Honestly, I think that's where we get it from as mankind. Because we enjoy it. That's why Legos is a multi-million dollar industry. Because you take a kid as its youngest age and a kid loves to create things. And we'll step back and we'll admire something that we've created, even though to someone else it may look terrible. But we'll, we'll admire it because it's our creation. And there's something that feels good about creating things. And I, I, think, I think we get it from the Lord. It's just, now, now let me show you these verses. I don't want you to take my word for it for sure. Let me show you these verses and I'll try to close. I want you to go first of all with me to the book of uh, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter number 46 I want to turn two places in regard to the physical creation that God created. And then i got three passages I want you to look at in regards to our spiritual creation. The first place is here, Isaiah 46 and verse number 10. And when you look at the context of this, this chapter, I believe that God is talking about Genesis 1. 
in Genesis 2 when everything was created. And there's a word, there's one word that's going to go, that's going to be in all five of these verses that I want you to pay attention to. But Isaiah 46, and look with me in verse number 10. He said, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Now, I'm really interested in that word, pleasure, that the Bible mentions. In fact, you go back to verse 9, and you'll see where he said, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. So this is God as being the creator. And as God is the creator, he said, I will do all things to my pleasure. Now go with me to Revelation chapter number 4. Let me show you this first, another place where this word appears. Revelation chapter number 4. Now in this chapter, you have kind of a unique, uh, a unique uh, scene. You have the scene of the throne of God as he's in heaven and he's being worshipped. And I want you to notice the last verse, verse number 11 of chapter number 4, this statement that is made. He said, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy, here's the word again, for thy pleasure they are and were created. So I think very simply the answer to this, why did God not just speak the word and everything was in existence? Because God enjoyed the process of creating the world. Why did God not just save us and all of a sudden we are in heaven? Because God takes pleasure in the process of creating us. Let me show you three verses real quick. Uh, first of all, look with me in Ephesians chapter number 1. It's such a great chapter. There's so much that could be said in these verses. One of the things that's interesting to me about this chapter, of course, you know it's a chapter that deals with predestination. And there's a lot of false teaching that has been brought from this chapter. But we understand that God is sovereign. And, and honestly, I think that when you understand God in creation, it will give you a better perspective on God's election and God's predestination. Because we know it all revolves around being in Christ. That's what he said in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You're in Christ. And when you're put in Christ, you have the predestination. You've been predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. He talks about that here in Ephesians chapter number 1. But I want you to notice what he says in verse number 5. He said, having predestinated us. There's the word we were just talking about. Uh, because you'll notice in verse number 4, I don't want to skip this. He said, according as he hath chosen us. And here's the key word, in him. It's all in the person of Christ. He said, he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And here's verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. He's saying that what God has done in salvation is he, even though you're not the finished product, you have been predestinated to be conformed to the image of him. And it is, it is his pleasure. He enjoys doing that in your life. Look with me in Philippians, just a few pages over. Philippians chapter 2. This is a very familiar passage as well. Philippians chapter number 2. And I think this is one of the greatest texts that deal with the work of God in our life. Again, this is another couple verses that have really been taken out of context. And there's been a lot of false things that have been preached from these verses. Verse number 12 is where he talks about, he said, Wherefore, my beloved, this is Philippians 2 verse 12. 
He said, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And here's the phrase that people get tore up about. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. All simply I believe Paul is talking about is the process of, of working out what God has put inside of us. And he clarifies it. In fact, you wouldn't get so tore up or people wouldn't get so tore up about the verse if they would, if they would just connect it with the next verse because he's very clear about it in verse 13. He said, it is God which worketh in you. That's his creating in our life. He said, it's God that worketh in you both the will and to do, and notice this phrase, of his good pleasure. Paul said, Paul said, this process of God taking you from where you were and conforming you to the image of Christ, the reason God is so involved in your life is because he enjoys it. It is his good pleasure to work this process in your life. Uh, let me show you just one more verse. Uh, 2 Thessalonians, look at this verse with me. 2 Thessalonians, this was really Paul's prayer uh, to these believers here. But 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1, and notice with me verse number 11. Paul kind of submits this same idea, this same process. He said, Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith. With power. It's interesting to me how many times that word work or works is connected to that word pleasure. That God working in us is what He enjoys. He enjoys the process of conforming us to the image of Christ. Uh, let me give you this illustration and I'm done. This is the best way. I told you this is way, way deeper than, than I can preach. But this is the best way I can process it in my mind. I was thinking about people that will see artists in particular. I was preaching on this a few weeks ago, and I was joking about my artistic skills, and they're non-existent. I don't have any. Uh, my, uh, my boy asked me a few weeks ago if I'd draw him a car, and I did. And it looked like the same car that I used to draw when I was eight years old, uh, sitting in church riding instead of paying attention. Terrible, terrible. I have no artistic skills at all. But you've, you've seen artists that they'll go somewhere like the parkway, and they'll set up their canvas, and they'll start to paint a scene. And, and because I can't, because I don't have any skill, to me, I look at them and I say, why would you go to all that work? Because we're living in 2023, a picture, you can take a camera, I mean, take your phone. You can take a picture in an instant, in milliseconds, you can take a picture of that scene, it'll be better quality, and you can take it down to Walmart and you can have it printed out and there's your painting, you don't have to go through all that effort. But the reason that artist will sit there for hours and hours and hours and he'll paint that scene is because he enjoys the process of that creation. He could have it in a picture. He could do it in an instant. But he enjoys sitting there. Here's what an artist enjoys. He enjoys taking a blank canvas and setting it up there beside that scene. And he enjoys saying, I'm going to make this canvas look like that and he begins that process and man when you're watching you think what in the world is this guy doing that is never going to look like that but when he gets finished if he knows what he's doing that that canvas looks exactly like that scene here's the best way i know to describe our life and the process of what god is doing when he saved us he created us as a blank canvas he forgave us of our sin 
washed away our past. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And here's what God is doing in your, in your life right now. If you're saved and if God's working in your life, here's what he's doing. He's taking your life in a blank canvas and he's holding it next to the image of Christ. And he, that's what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. And he says, I'm going to make him, I'm going to make her look like that. And the process of God in our life is that he is creating us to look like his son. Someday God is going to finish that creation. One of the amazing things, and we know God doesn't make any mistakes, but one of the amazing things about an artist, how many times have you seen artists that can take a mistake that has been made and they can make it look beautiful? It's, it's amazing the skill that they have. And you know, that's the skill. There's so many things in your life that you may be struggling with right now. And, and, and we look at ourselves. I look at myself sometimes. And I think, God, there's no way you can make anything good out of me. There's no way that you could. How in the world are you going to conform me to the image of Christ? And to us, it looks like a mess. But the truth is, God is the artist in our life. And he's creating. And sometimes... Sometimes situations that we don't understand, sometimes situations that to us look bad, to us look awful, to us we think, and I'm not, I don't know if you understand, I'm not saying that God okays sin in our life, I'm talking about that, but, but I'm just talking about the process that God, God, he knows that we're but dust. He, he understands, he knoweth our frame. And God enjoys, you know what, I think this, I think if you can ever, if you, if you can ever really get a hold of this, It'll really, help you. It'll really help you understanding how important it is that we don't rebel against what God's trying to do in our life. So many times, you know, we look at it as like rules and regulations, and man, I'm so tired of the preacher preaching all that, and we're just pushing back the whole time. But what you don't understand, if you could see what God is trying to make you, if you could see what he's trying to create in your life, you wouldn't be all the time pushing against what God's trying to do. You wouldn't all the time be trying to rebel against preaching and rebel against the teaching of the world. No, you'd say, God, I'm thankful that you would take someone as unworthy as me and try to make something out of me, and you would submit your will to the will of God. I think that's what God wants in our life. That's, that's, what, that's, his, that's God's greatest, God's desire. I don't understand why we, why we picture him as, as, as this, and, and I'm not trying to take away from his deity, but we always picture him as the God in heaven is going to hit us over the head with a baseball bat if we don't follow these rules. God's desire is not that perspective. God's desire is you saying, Lord, here's my life, and you completely submitting your will to God. And his desire is to have a blank canvas that he can work in. That's why one of the greatest illustrations of God in our life is that potter in the clay God wants us to be the clay that he can work in and he can develop. Listen to me. When, you, when you're pushing against what God's doing in your life, whether it's sin in your life that you're not willing to get rid of and you're just pushing, you're saying, God, I love my sin too much and I don't want to get rid of it. And God's trying to work it out of you. Whether it's sin, whether it's suffering that you're going through. It, it may not be sin, but it may be a trial that you're going through. And you don't understand God is using that trial and you're pushing against it. You're trying to get out of it. You're trying to get away from it. And, and, and you're, you're just, you, you wish you could change your circumstances. Don't forget that it's God working in your life. And it very, it very well could be that what you're doing is you're messing up what God is trying to create in you. I believe that God, let me say it like this, I'm closing. But when you push against that in your life, when you, when you do push against those things and you don't want to go through that suffering and you don't want to get rid of that sin, you are taking away the enjoyment of God of work in your life. 
That's the reason he's created you. It's for his good pleasure. And he enjoys taking your life. He doesn't expect you to be perfect. He doesn't expect you to never fall. He doesn't expect you to be, uh, you know, this, this unreachable kind of saint. All he wants is for you to be a willing vessel. And he can create in us what he wants in our life. Let's stand together and let's pray. Preacher, if you want to come and give the invitation. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it for your honor and your glory. And that you would, uh, Lord, touch the lives and the hearts that are here. I, Lord, I'm, I'm convicted myself of how many times that I've tried to mess up what you're creating in my life. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand the process of you working in us. Lord, the amazement that you would even be willing to do that. Lord, really, maybe some of the things we've been complaining about, we should come tonight and Lord say thank you. Thank you for working in my life. And Lord, have your will in the rest of the service. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.